you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, look in the seats somewhere around you underneath. Uh, there's probably, hopefully, a blue hardback one there. And uh, as a bonus, there's even some uh, large print editions if you need that. So uh, Luke chapter 24. Uh, as I said earlier, if you don't own a Bible, there are some uh, Bibles on that table in the lobby as well. We'd love for you to take that home with you today and start reading it. Uh, we think it'll change your life. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters. The small numbers are the verses. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. Uh, and, and, if you're, and if you've never opened a Bible before, there's a table of contents in the front. It'll tell you what page Luke starts on. Then you just find uh, chapter 24, and we'll start in verse 36. Um, now, in the art world, there is a kind of a painting that's referred to as a triptych. Uh, it just basically means uh, a three-part painting or a three-part image, right? So it usually means that the painting's in three panels that are kind of displayed together. This is what I'm used to seeing when I think of triptychs. Uh, generally, the triptych is kind of three standalone parts, but they, all, they usually tell one story or they're all part of the one kind of image. Uh, kind of like three acts to a play um, or maybe three episodes in your favorite Netflix series that's three episodes long. I don't know any that are, but uh, I'm most familiar with triptychs in the world of iconography in the church. There are certain parts of the church that are really big into imagery, and they're really beautiful. Uh, and so most often I've seen triptychs as part of the Orthodox tradition uh, as part of an icon. So I want to show you one here. So this is an Eastern Orthodox uh, triptych of the resurrection. And, and what's cool about these, uh, from this tradition particularly, is that they tell a very specific story. Now, we don't have time to go into the whole thing, but every color, every gesture, everything about this is meant to teach you something. Uh, and so that's a triptych. There's three parts to it. Uh, there's three scenes. Uh, and so today, as we read this section of the Gospel of Luke, uh, in regards to the resurrection, the resurrection sort of story in the Gospel of Luke is like a triptych. There's three kind of distinct parts to it. There's three scenes. And today, we're actually going to look at the final scene in this three-part scene on Easter Sunday in the Gospel of Luke. So we're actually going to pick up the story on the night of Easter. Jesus has been resurrected. So I'm going to ask Hannah to come. She's going to read the text for us, and then I'll pray, and we will dig in. So Luke 24 is where we're going to be. Thank you. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened the, their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Thank you. So Luke chapter 24, and we're going to pick up the story there where Hannah read for us. Uh, But let me pray first. Jesus, again, we come to you thankful for your resurrection, and we thank you that we have uh, this inspired word that we can look to to uh, know that our faith is on solid ground and to, to, to get everything we need to live in this world uh, with your spirit in us. And so we ask that you would help us to see what you want us to see this morning and that we go out from here uh, edified and glorifying you and, and on mission together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Luke 24 gives us this sort of resurrection triptych, these three scenes from Easter day that are all really kind of part of one big scene. And so if the scenes were painted, the first panel would be a painting conversation with the angels at the empty tomb. Why are you looking for him here among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. The second scene would be kind of of the the two disciples on the Emmaus road. If you know that story, uh, the Bible says their hearts burned as they listened to Jesus, who they didn't recognize as he explained to them how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. Uh, And then the third panel would be a painting of what we just heard, of Jesus suddenly sort of appearing in the middle of his disciples, who I would imagine are pretty startled, right? Uh, they're on Easter evening. And so it's, it's really likely, uh, I'm going to, I got to believe that this painting is somewhere. I don't know, I could find one, but I got to believe that somebody thought, hey, we should paint these three scenes together as a triptych. I'm hoping so because that would be, and I would enjoy that, that, that my illustration just worked. So, but from a literary point of view, Luke's resurrection uh, three-parter, his triptych is really interesting because all three of the scenes kind of follow the same pattern. There's confusion, then Jesus corrects, and then there's this element of witness in in all three. And so as we look at this third and this final scene in this triptych here, what we see is confusion kind of bordering on chaos to start. Uh, The 11, now if you know the story, you know that one of the disciples died by suicide, actually, uh, and, and he is no longer with them. So the 11, not 12, had gathered behind closed doors in Jerusalem Uh, We see this in John chapter 20. And the apostle Peter had um, really amazed them by saying that he had personally seen the risen Lord. So that's kind of setting the scene. And then after that, there's the entrance of the two from the Emmaus Road and their report uh, of their encounter with Jesus, who they didn't realize, their hearts burning. And then the moment that they realized who it was when he broke bread. And so that's kind of the scene. And so as we look at verse 36... This is what it says. As they were talking about these things, what things? Well, whatever Peter had to say and whatever the two from Emmaus had to say, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. I love that it doesn't say like he came in the door. He's just there. There he is. And there's a sense in which on an Easter morning like this, 
Jesus is going to just show up in your life too. He's going to just interrupt whatever you have going on. And he says to them, peace to you. And that's his word to you this morning as well. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, which like you would probably too. If somebody just showed up and you didn't hear a door open or not even someone climbing a window, you'd be like, well, I guess this is a ghost. They thought they saw a spirit. They had sort of, they were right in that mode where they're just like hearing the story and wow, I can't, that's amazing. Peter, cool. Oh, you guys from the Emmaus Road, awesome. And then Jesus is just there. And I imagine there's an audible gasp in the room. You've been in a room like that before, right? Or maybe you've been in a gathering of people and something happens and you hear that, right? I imagine that. And, and they have that feeling where they're like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Is this what's happening right now? And then Jesus' voice that they knew greeted them, right? What did he say? Peace to you. Peace on earth. That peace that had been announced at, at his coming, this is what he is saying to them. But, but again, they, they didn't have much peace going on inside in this moment. They kind of had chaos going on, right? Uh, they, they, they have this unbelief. These, these apostles were foolish and slow of heart. That's from verse 25 of Luke 24. And they, and they were confused, just as confused as the ones who had been on the Emmaus Road had been. And just as confused as you and I would be, right? Sometimes it's easy to see the disciples and be like, oh, you guys, but we would do the same thing. And so then Jesus, in verse 38, he starts to sort of reprove them or, or correct them a little bit. And it took the form of kind of a, a question and I, and I wonder if there isn't a little bit, I know Jesus is so loving and, and maybe this is just me and my issues, but it sounds to me like maybe there's a little bit of kind of loving disappointment in his voice. And he said to them, verse 38, why, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, it, it's me. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And so after this, nobody can say it was a spirit. This is a physical body. This is Jesus alive in the flesh, literally. And so they feel for themselves and they feel flesh on bones. This is a real person. Jesus is physically there. It's his earthly body. And this is so important for us for implications for the resurrection. This is his earthly body, but glorified, just as at the resurrection of the dead, you will have your earthly body, but glorified. You're not turning into an angel. You're not going to be a spirit floating in the air. God made this earth and this creation, and he is going to make it new. And your body is part of that. And the fact that Jesus had a physical body after the resurrection is evidence and proof of that. And so Jesus was material. He was physical. And so in, in, in this moment, the apostles had disbelief go from a negative disbelief to a positive disbelief. Here's what I mean. The negative disbelief is like, oh, he's gone. There's no way. And then the positive disbelief is like, no way this can be true. I can't believe what I'm seeing, but I'm seeing it. You, you've had those moments of positive disbelief, right? Even verse 41 says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they still disbelieved for joy. There's a kind of happy disbelief. No way, right? And they're in this state of 
You've been in this state, if, if you've lived long enough, where uh, maybe uh, you're a baseball fan and a guy hits a walk-off home run. You're in that state of disbelief. I can't believe I just saw this. As a kid, I went to a baseball game, and you might not know this name, but I saw Wade Boggs hit his 3,000th hit. In this, I was in the stadium, and I couldn't believe I saw it because I love baseball. I couldn't believe I got to be in the stadium for that to happen. And now imagine that feeling on an eternal scale. I cannot believe what I'm seeing. And then Jesus, he kind of, he kind of, he's so loving and he gives them, he makes a request to them that actually is intended to serve their disbelief. What does he say? Do you have anything to eat? They, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before him. Never have I felt more aligned with Jesus. Then do you have anything to eat? Now, this is not the only time Jesus did this. And don't think this is just because he's hungry. It might be because he's a human, but he's also doing this to help them see, hey, I'm eating real food. I'm a real human. After the resurrection, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he ate with them. We see this in the book of Acts, which we're about to step into a long series in. Peter told Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, God made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who what ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. After he rose from the dead, he's eating and drinking. He is fully human. After this, none of these disciples really ever doubted again the reality of the resurrection. In fact, they were completely changed. Completely changed. And so you have to imagine... As much as Jesus had their attention during his earthly ministry when he would teach, he never had their attention more than he's got it right now in this scene, right? Resurrected Jesus has got their full, undivided, undistracted attention. And so he begins to give instruction in verse 44. And as he proceeds to instruct them, you, you have to take into consideration those three successive events on Easter Day, all focused on the scriptures for instruction. So, first, the angels at the tomb. What did they refer back to? They referred these women back to the, to the words of Jesus himself in chapter 24, verse 6 of Luke. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered? If, if you don't know, Son of Man is a title for Jesus. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day Rise and they, the women, remembered his words. Then a little bit later, it says this. Next, Christ, uh, Christ says this on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's in chapter 24, verse 25. And now in sort of this third panel in the triptych, uh, Jesus explains his life, his death, his resurrection in the dynamic of kind of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms could be fulfilled. Now, here, here's how one commentator says it. I, I like this. He says, quote, the solemn division of Scripture into the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, indicates that there is no part of Scripture that does not bear witness to Jesus. 
So to simplify, everything in your Bible is about Jesus. That's what it's all about. Everything that happens, every story that's told, there's a kid's Bible that I love that says every story whispers his name. And that's true. And so we have to understand that one of the reasons that Jesus taught them from the scripture, and this is so important for us, is that he didn't want their belief in his resurrection to be on personal experience alone. Because hear me, Christianity is not based on your personal experience alone. It is a personal experience with Jesus, as these disciples had. But your faith as a Christian, our faith as the church globally, is not based simply on personal experience, because that's what a cult is. Jesus is not interested in this group of men becoming this little cult-like group with special knowledge that only he had given them. He doesn't want to just have their faith be on the foundation of a miracle alone. He also wants it to ground it. He wants to ground their experience of his resurrection on the testimony and the witness of the scripture that goes all the way back. See, because you can actually... You can believe in the resurrection and not believe in Jesus. Now, you can't believe in Jesus and not believe in the resurrection, but you can believe in a, in a historical resurrection and not trust in Jesus. Jesus warned this earlier in the parable of the rich man. If they do not hear Moses, if people don't listen to the law, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's in Luke chapter 16. So Jesus' death Life, death, and resurrection only make saving sense in the context of the entirety of the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so th this is kind of the, the, the climax of a teachable moment for these disciples with Jesus. Jesus, in this moment, probably would have seated himself, taking on the posture of a rabbi, which he was. He was their teacher. They were his students. He would have sat down to teach and he would have been gesturing to his nail-scarred hands and teaching them all of the scriptures. That There was nobody uh, you know, distracted on their phone in this moment. There was nobody, uh, as we'll, we'll see in just a little while in the book of Acts, falling out of uh, windows and, and falling asleep in the middle of a teaching, right? His teaching is enhanced not only by his skill as a teacher, Jesus was a brilliant teacher, but also by the Holy Spirit. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So they've been his followers. They've been walking with him. But there was a spiritual veil that covered their eyes. This is a mystery that hasn't quite been revealed yet. So on two occasions, when he foretold his death, this is what we read in, in chapter 9 of Luke. It was concealed from them so they might not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about anything. And, and then again later on, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. But on Easter night, the evening after all this has happened, their eyes are open. Their spiritual eyes are open, and the, the scriptures are illuminated to them. They're, they're holding the scriptures, to, to use a word picture, in the dark. And on Easter night, somebody brings a light and shines it on it so they can see what it says. And so this is... What we see and what they learned that night and in the conversations that led after this uh, during the 40 days before Jesus ascended back into heaven really became the substance for the New Testament. That that's 
the apostles' teaching that the church was devoted to in the book of Acts that we're going to step into is all the stuff that Jesus taught them about the gospel and about their mission as his sent ones, his disciples, his apostles. And so here's kind of the instruction. Jesus, we read that he instructs them about the gospel from the Old Testament. Verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It is written where? In the scriptures. And so from, from this teaching that Jesus gives, what we understand is that the apostolic preaching of the gospel, when the apostles went and preached the good news of Jesus raised from the dead, it's always on the backdrop of the Old Testament, that this is fulfillment. 1 Corinthians 15, famous scripture says this, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. This is a letter from one of these apostles to a church in a city called Corinth. He says, I want to remind you of the good news. That if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Here's the most important thing you need to hear. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That this wasn't some random event. That this was in accordance with God's word. And so from there, we we have to also understand that the gospel is fully preached when it's given its context of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so I just want to walk you through this. Where do you find the gospel of Jesus in the law? You find it all the way back in the book of Genesis, to be honest. Right from the very first sin, there is, at Christmas time, we talk about this first prophecy of Jesus, that he will crush the head of the snake. But, but where do we see it in the law? Well, we see it most clearly in his sufferings, in the great, like the events that happened around the law. According to Exodus 24, the old covenant... Is, is sort of launched on the blood of animal sacrifices, which Moses would have doused on the altar, he would have doused on the book, and he would have doused on the people. Praise God that we're in the new covenant, right? Yes. Yeah. In the following centuries, imagine all of the animals who were slaughtered in this sacrificial system. And if you feel like, gosh, that is so just gross to think about animal blood, you're right. That is what our sin is like. And so this would have been, though, an external ceremonial cleansing of the sins of those who offered these animal sacrifices. And just just as a side note, in in a couple of Fridays on the 29th, myself and Bob, who's just not here today, we are going to do another professor and the pastor discussion on the cross and on the atonement. Why is the cross necessary? What's the deal with blood? What does the cross even accomplish? So I want to invite you to come to that. You can find info about it. Ask me after service, lansdown.church, click events. It's there. Uh, But we're going to be talking about that. And so if you have questions today, write them down. You'll be able to text them in. We'll have a QA and a or just come and ask. Uh, Looking forward to that. So these sacrifices in the Old Testament... Uh, what they gained was this external ceremonial cleansing of the person who offered it. 
They pointed to, though, they were a shadow of something greater, a kind of cleansing, a kind of transformation that was different and better. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so if that system can ceremonially cleanse you on the outside, how much more will the blood of Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, animals don't offer themselves, they're offered. But Christ, who's the better sacrifice, offers himself of his own volition for you. And so if the, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify what our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So not only will Jesus cleanse you on the outside and make you a new creation, but he will change your desires. He will change your conscience. He will rescue you from the power of sin inside that makes you do the things you know you shouldn't do and not do the things you want to do or that you know you should do. And so these daily animal sacrifices pointed to and they begged the question for the ultimate sacrifice of Christ which would actually atone for sins. They they pointed to it in a similar way that the Passover lamb of Exodus 12 prophesied Jesus' sufferings. I encourage you to go back and read Exodus 12. And so just before his death, while the disciples are in the upper room, Jesus makes it very clear to them that he is the Passover lamb as he prepared to eat the Passover meal. He said this to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus fulfilled the Passover to the letter of the law, why he was a male in his prime with no defect. And so Jesus is fulfilling and perfecting this system. And and he didn't have any of his bones broken during his sacrifice. That's part of the requirements. And so now, just as faith in, in the blood of the Passover lamb delivers the Israelites from death... Jesus, having faith in the Passover lamb, who is Jesus ultimately, delivers you not only just from death, but brings life. You're not only saved from death, you're brought into life. Jesus is our ultimate Passover. Now, now, not only are the sufferings of Jesus in the law, though, but you also see that there's even a hint of resurrection in the law itself. Luke in chapter 20 says that Jesus is having this argument with a group of people called the Sadducees, who are a religious sect uh, in the Jewish community. And he shows them Exodus 3.6 because they say there is no resurrection of the dead. Like many people in our day and age, that there is no resurrection of the dead. And Jesus shows them Exodus 3 where God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when he does this, this proves the idea of resurrection because... God would not say, I am the God of those who are deceased unless there was a resurrection and they would live again. And so Peter remembers this and he alludes to it in his sermon in Acts chapter 3. And he proclaims that the resurrection, he says this, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead in Acts chapter 3, 
verse 15. And so Peter saw that the same resurrection power that would raise the patriarchs who, who had died, uh, that would raise them to life after death, also raised Jesus, who after all is the author of life. So we see this gospel, this good news of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in the law. But what about the prophets? The most sort of on-the-nose foretelling of the sufferings of Jesus. And if you have any background in church at all, or you've been to a Good Friday service at a church at some point in your life, you've heard the words from Isaiah chapter 53 on the suffering servant. And so Jesus actually uh, directs the disciples in the upper room uh, in, by calling himself or saying that he was numbered with the transgressors. That's a reference back to that passage. And so he's giving their attention to this idea that every line of the Bible and every line, especially in chapter 53 of the prophet Isaiah, is referring to him as the suffering servant, that this is all about him. But not only, again, do the prophets deal with the sufferings of Jesus, they speak of his resurrection happening on the third day. In, Luke, in verse 46 of where we just read in Luke, uh, he's, he's alluding here to the prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 2, which says this, After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise up that we may live before him. Now, that prophecy is given hundreds of years before Jesus, and it's given to the people of Israel, but there's nothing in their history that we can correspond that prophecy to except that when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he raised with himself the true Israel who believed in him. And so this prophecy points to Jesus. Jesus' body was in the tomb for two days, and then on the third day, he rose again. He was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. What about the Psalms? What about the poetry of the Bible? Well, Psalm 22 is the prime example. It gives us a technical description of the crucifixion death of Jesus before there was crucifixion. Like Psalm 22 is penned before anybody had invented crucifixion yet. But even more than that, it describes the experience of Jesus even to the detail of soldiers gambling for his clothing. Psalm 22, verse 18. But again, the Psalms also, they don't stop at the death. They go to the resurrection. And Peter explains this again in his sermon at Pentecost. He quotes Psalm 16, which says this in verse 8 through 11. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, full, make me full of gladness with your presence. So then Peter goes on from there to explain that it's not David who fulfilled this prophecy, as many thought, because David is in the ground. But Jesus, the ultimate Son, the Holy One, did fulfill it because he rose before decomposition could even begin on the third day. This is Acts chapter 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. This can't be about David. We know where he's buried. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with, him, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so what we see is that Jesus is the theme of the entire Old Testament scripture. He, that, that's what it's all about. As the law gets opened, as we saw on the road to Emmaus, if you know the story, hearts are burning. As the prophets are opened, the flames get bigger. And then in the Psalms, we're fully engulfed with passion for Jesus. And these disciples are the same. They become men of the gospel. They become sent ones who go out and start every church in the world, including, if we could go all the way back, the one you're sitting in right now. Well, the building you're sitting in, but you know what I mean. But it doesn't stop there, right? Jesus also shows them the answer to the question we saw in the video, if you caught it. What now? The resurrection's true. If you came here today as a guest, I'm not going to try to convince you that it's true, because it is true. I, I would just gently say the burden of proof is on you that it's not. But what now? And the answer to that question, for Jesus, it's not a new answer. The answer to that question is the ancient answer of God's global mission that's been taught throughout the scriptures from the beginning of God's people. Well, what about the law? Well, the law or the Torah foretold this right in the origin story of God's people, the nation of Israel. God says this to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You sitting here today is a fulfillment of that promise. This is accomplished through the ultimate offspring, Jesus. Paul explains this in Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. He's the heir. He's the mediator of the promise that God made to Abraham. And the blessing goes out to the Gentiles, which is you and me. We're blessed through Father Abraham. It goes out to the Gentiles as we come to Christ, as we're adopted into his body, as we're grafted into the people of God. And Galatians 3 says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring Heirs according to promise. If you belong to Jesus, the promise God made to Abraham is what he makes to you. The nations of the earth are blessed with the riches spiritually of Abraham when not only they believe, but then when they turn around and preach this good news to others who might believe. What about the prophets? In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas explain why they are turning now to the Gentiles, which thank God they did, because here we are. They turn to the Gentiles. They quote from Isaiah 49. This is in Acts 13. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. So all of us as followers of Jesus, we are invited into this ancient idea of the mission of God, that God has a global mission on his heart. And we are invited into bringing light to those in our community, those around the world and preaching the gospel so that salvation will go to the ends of the earth. But what about the Psalms? Again, Psalm 22, which 
talks about the sufferings of Jesus in graphic detail. It ends with a statement about mission and the ends of the earth. I don't know if you've thought about this, but when you read the ends of the earth in your Bible, you're the ends of the earth. This is the ends of the earth from where they were writing this. All of the, uh, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. One of the things I love about our church, this church, is when I stand up here and I look out, I see a representation of all the nations in a way that in many places I've lived in before, I haven't. And it's beautiful. And so that night, on Easter night, as Jesus is there with the 11 disciples, he has given them the gospel and the mission, and he has tied it to the Old Testament scriptures for them. He showed them that the law, the prophets, the psalm, all of those taught his sufferings, all of those taught his death, and all of them taught his resurrection. And then on top of that and from that, the what now, all of those are teaching them that there is a mission that God is on to the world. It starts in Jerusalem the heartland of the faith that Jesus was a part of as a Jew, but then it goes to the globe. It goes out into the world. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for everybody in the world. There is not a people for whom the gospel is not for. And for those of us who believe, as those who follow Jesus and call him Lord and Savior, we are called to be people of the good news. We're we're gospel people. We're resurrection people in word and deed. And what's the good news? It's summed up for us again in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins, for your sins, for my sins, in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. And on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, he was raised. And so the gospel of Jesus is not just a philosophy. It's not just a way of life. It's Good news that leads to those things, but it's good news based on historical events that were prophesied in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah. And see, if we're good news people, that means that we're sent people. We're mission people. If you call Jesus your Lord, understand you're calling a missionary your Lord, your teacher, the one whom you want to model your life after. And so you are called on mission when you follow Jesus. Now, all three panels of this resurrection three-part you know, series, this triptych, they all conclude with this, this reality of being a witness. This is a big theme for us. If you go out on that table and you pick up the paper that says the alliance on the top of it, you're going to see right there, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's a central theme for us as an alliance church. And so the two on the road... To Emmaus, they come back to Jerusalem to share what happened along the way. Uh, the women who came from the empty tomb were witnesses of this resurrection. And, and Jesus makes it formal in verse 48 of our text. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he's promising to them the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that if you know and love Jesus is living in you now. This is a promise that Jesus reiterated at his ascension, Acts chapter 1-8, which is a theme for us. We're an Acts 1-8 family. That's what we say in the Alliance. This is what it says. You, those of you who believe and trust Jesus, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when the Spirit came, if you know the story, there was power. 
So much power, in fact, that as I've said a bunch of times, we're sitting here today across the planet from this tiny movement. And here we are. The preaching of the gospel is not advanced by just knowing the law. It's not advanced by knowing the prophets and the Psalms, although those are all good things that point you to Jesus. It's not advanced by just the fact that the scriptures fulfill the death uh, that the scriptures are fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is advanced when those who are sent are empowered by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does and he makes dead people alive. That's how the gospel works. That's why we celebrate the resurrection. Because when Jesus, who was dead, became alive, you now are given the opportunity by faith to make your dead self alive through Christ. Or I should say, Christ will make you alive by the power of his spirit. Paul testifies to this in the Thessalonian letter. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So, to those of us who trust in and follow Jesus already, I want to invite you to to see this resurrection morning as just a reminder to you of the mission that God is calling you to participate in. And if you're like, I don't know if God's calling you to missions, he is. It's not a question. Now, whether or not he's calling you to go overseas and be a vocational missionary, that's a different discussion. But he is calling you to be part of his mission, the Missio Dei, the mission of God in the world to redeem and reconcile all things to himself, not counting our sins against us through the work of Christ. And so resurrection morning is a reminder to us that yes, Christ has been raised amazing and now what? We're on mission. To do what? He's calling you to be people of the good news, of of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's who we are now. But to those of us who maybe don't yet trust in Jesus, you you don't follow Jesus, you're interested, but maybe you don't follow him. Maybe you're just here for this morning because you felt some kind of desire to go to church on Easter. Awesome. Glad you're here. Maybe somebody invited you here. Even more awesome. Maybe uh, you're watching this later on out of curiosity. Maybe somebody forced you to be here. I don't know. But you're here. And I have to tell you that I don't think any of that is a coincidence or an accident. The God that we believe in works in mysterious ways, and you're here this morning for a reason. And so he drew you here today to be with us, to see a bunch of regular people who are sinful just like you celebrate that this Jesus that we follow has broken the power of sin and death over our lives. He has set us free to live in resurrection power. You don't have to sin anymore. The reality is, and I think you know this if we're honest with ourselves, that you're a sinner. That's the truth about each one of us. And so I'm not here to hammer you about that because I think you know that. But I do want to just challenge you to really ponder what the resurrection of Jesus means for you. What does it mean for you? And I, and I want to tell you that it means that death doesn't have the final say over you. You're going to die one day. But death doesn't have to have the final answer over you, which means your sin does not have to rule over you. Jesus, by his death, has paid the penalty by his own shed blood 
of your sins. And by his resurrection, he has shown that the debt of sin is paid in full. And he has broken, therefore, sin's power over us. The only thing then standing between you and the love, the joy, the peace of resurrection life with Jesus as your Lord is just your submission to him. That's it. As we sang earlier, there's no penance to pay. There's no price that you, anything you can do, just come and drink living water. The church exists for this moment. And when I say church, I mean capital C, global church. Yeah, we do a lot of other things. We have pizza together. We play cornhole. We do all kinds of fun stuff. But at the very bottom of who we are as the church, as the body of Christ, we exist to see the resurrection power of Jesus rescue people like you and me. That's why we do this. That's why we build buildings. That's why we do outreaches and Easter egg hunts and all that stuff, because we want to see dead people come alive like we've experienced. So my question for you is, do you trust Jesus today? That's the question. I hope it haunts you. And I hope the answer to that question is yes. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to pray to close our service. And if you're a guest with us, we've, we've been kind of doing things a little different. So I want to explain it to you because I don't want you to feel uh, like what's going on here. And so I'm going to pray to close our service. Then I'll have just a few more words. But right now, if you're here in the room with us or you may be watching online later uh, or, or you're in this again in this room and you've said yes to Jesus for the first time, maybe just me saying that you're going, I, yes, I do believe. I want to just invite you to come and just talk to me in the front row here. Come grab a seat in the front row uh, after I pray and, and speak the blessing over us in just a minute. And, and so again, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give a couple instructions. And then I'm going to speak a blessing. And if you've said yes to Jesus today, I would love to just meet with you. I would love to just pray with you and help you take the next step on that journey that's the rest of your life. So let me pray. Jesus, we praise you today for the reality of your resurrection And Holy Spirit, we invite you now to do what you can do. To break through the unbelief in our hearts. To shine a light into the darkness of our souls and bring new life to us. Father, we know that you created everything out of nothing. And so what we don't need is to be kind of renewed a little bit. We need to be brought back to life. And so, Father, I pray for those of us who are in this room who are uh, not yet believing in you, that they would take that bold step of faith and just come and say, I've said yes to Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you do the work that only you can do right now and draw people to yourself? And I pray this all in Jesus' name.